2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, and we're going to read through until chapter 6, verse 2. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer, prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who should live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Thanks very much. Great to be with you again this evening. Hope you've had a good day. It's great being at a conference where we're singing uh, new songs. I've never done that before. Being at a conference where we're singing homegrown music is very exciting. And uh, I, I actually, that Charles Wesley hymn that some set some music to is one of my favorites, and I'd never sung it congregationally. And uh, I asked her a couple of months ago if she could write a new tune, and uh, that's what she produced. So I'm particularly excited about that one. Uh, well, do keep that um, page of your Bibles open in 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to take a look at that passage uh, in a minute. Um, every summer in the UK, there are uh, scores of youth camps that happen uh, all over the country. And uh, these youth camps have been really instrumental for the ministry of the gospel in the UK. Scores of people have been uh, brought to faith uh, through the ministry of these camps. Uh, lots of people have been uh, trained up in Christian ministry uh, through these camps as well. Uh, very instrumental in my life. Uh, it was at one of these camps that I first remember hearing and understanding the gospel. And as a uni student and later uh, was involved and had my first experiences of Christian ministry. And uh, many of these camps 
have a similar teaching program. They go through a systematic uh, teaching program over the course of the week. Uh, So things like, uh, how can we know about God? Uh, What is God like? Who's Jesus? Why did he come? Why did he die? Why did he rise? How can I become a Christian? How can I be sure I'm a Christian? Who's the Holy Spirit? What's the Bible all about? Prayer, evangelism, church. How can I keep going to the end? That sort of thing, roughly. And that talk in the middle, how can I become a Christian, became known as the way talk. The way talk. I'm not entirely sure why, but anyway, it's called the way talk. And um, there were some people who would come to camp every year, and they knew it was coming, the way talk, the call to become a Christian, and they kind of braced themselves uh, to, against this talk. If you like, uh, my talk tonight is, uh, is the way talk, at least my way talk for the CV weekend. It's as close as you'll get to a call to full-time gospel ministry. We're thinking about the motivation for Christian ministry. And it may be that some of you are here for the third or fourth time, and you're kind of bracing yourselves because you know it's coming, and uh, you've got your excuses all lined up. I know one guy who... Uh, didn't even come to CV for a number of years because he told me he wasn't very good at saying no and he didn't want to be pressured into doing something he didn't want to do. So let me be upfront and tell you what I'm aiming for in this talk. My prayer is that some of you will make the decision tonight over this weekend to pursue full-time vocational gospel ministry. That is part of my aim, but I've got a higher aim. There's something I want even more. Part of me doesn't care whether you decide to pursue vocational ministry or not. What I do really care about, my biggest prayer for tonight and this weekend, is that you will all make the decision, af- uh, the decision afresh to surrender your lives to the Lord Jesus, to commit yourselves to his kingdom's cause, that you'll spend yourselves in the proclamation of the gospel for the sake of the lost, for the building up of the church, and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. We need churches filled with people with a white-hot faith and a wholehearted zeal for the honor and fame of the Lord Jesus. We need them in the workplace as health professionals and hairdressers, as policemen and politicians, as laborers and shopkeepers working for the glory of God, witnessing to the Lord who saved them. And for that to be a reality, we need uh, people in full-time and part-time ministry positions in the church and in the mission field, leading and pastoring God's people with the word of God and equipping them for their work and witness in the world. Now let me try and answer a question that may have arisen for you after this morning's talk that Greg gave and may well be a question after my talk tonight. Uh, which is, I think, this. If the building is collapsing and there is an urgent need for us to save people from judgment, then why would I leave my secular job in which I'm rubbing shoulders with non-Christians every day and go into a church-based ministry position where it seems that you can get tied up in a whole lot of church business and not do that much evangelism? Let me quickly try and answer that. Two things. Firstly, those of us that are church pastors need to be really intentional, don't we, about keeping personal evangelism as a priority in our schedules. I know myself, it's hard. Uh, I need to be really uh, intentional. I need to work hard to make sure that I, that I have that time spent with non-Christians in a normal context, just rubbing shoulders 
uh, so that I have that contact. Uh, I was talking to one guy today who uh, is a church minister and is thinking with his staff team about how each of them can make sure that they're spending 20% of their week in evangelism. That's the kind of thing that we need to be uh, thinking about, and it's a responsibility uh, for us, for those of us in that position. But the second part of the answer is, uh, if you're a pastor teacher, then part of your role is the training and equipping of God's people for works of ministry, for the building up of the church, which surely includes evangelism. Part of our role is training people for evangelism. So you might stay in your secular job, and it may be that you have more time personally, a higher proportion of your time is spent in evangelism, but you're a solo evangelist, you're a solo fisher of people. As a gospel minister, you spend your time replicating yourself, if you like, multiplying your ministry effectiveness, training people to be disciple makers who go on to train others to be disciple makers. So you're not just a solo evangelist, you've got an instrumental part at the head of an evangelistic disciple-making movement. So you may not spend as much of your time personally in evangelism, but you can be uh, so effective in that disciple-making movement. There's an answer you might want to ask again uh, tomorrow night in the question panel. Whether you decide to pursue full-time gospel ministry or not will depend on your gifting, your capacity, your opportunities. Uh, If you have the gifts, the character, the capacity, then there's a great need. There is a great need for more people to work in full-time ministry positions. But my prayer is that all of us will commit our lives afresh to the service of the Lord Jesus, whatever that looks like. What is going to motivate us to do that? What, What will sustain us in doing that for the long term? Uh, There are lots of things that could motivate us, and not all of them are good. So we're going to start by looking at four bad motivations for Christian ministry. Uh, One of the books uh, we've got at the conference uh, this weekend is Serving Without Sinking, uh, written by uh, John Hindley. And um, it's a great little book, very honest, very easy to read, and really looks at the motivations behind our Christian service. Uh, John's a friend of mine. And it's really intimidating when your friends start writing books. Um, You know, The the Naked God, have you read that? I think it's been quite popular in Australia. Written by Martin Ayres. Martin was an apprentice the same time as me. He was at Bible college uh, the same time as me. He wrote it while he was at Bible college. I mean, how intimidating is that? But um, John Hindley, um, uh, I served alongside him on one of these youth camps for a number of years. And uh, we used to call him Kindly Hindley because he, um, he kind of went around with a big grin on his face. He was just the most lovable uh, person. He's fond of putting his thumbs up like this, big cheesy grin. Um, but a, a really lovely guy, and he's written a fantastic book, uh, well worth getting hold of. And it really looks at these bad motivations uh, in more detail. But let's uh, look at these. They're on your sheets. Uh, no, they're not, but they will be on the screen. Uh, Bad motivations for Christian ministry. Firstly, we can be motivated by a desire to put God in our debt so that he has to uh, accept us and bless us. We probably wouldn't think as bluntly as that, but that's the lie that that we're believing in our hearts. 
And we're all susceptible to that works mentality. Uh, It's the way of the world, isn't it? To earn your way. But the gospel declares that we have been justified. We thought about that last night. We thought again about it this morning. We have a certain righteousness. God accepts us fully because of what Christ has done. The work is complete and we don't need to add anything to it. And when you think about when you do your ministry in order to earn God's acceptance, you're dishonoring God terribly because you're suggesting that the cross and resurrection wasn't enough. Secondly, we can be motivated by a desire to impress others. Again, we thought about this briefly last night, and this is a massive temptation uh, in ministry. I don't know any Christian ministers who aren't affected by this to some extent. I'm sure there's some, uh, but it seems pretty rare. I mean, what is my motivation in giving these talks this weekend? Uh, You're all smart, keen Christians. Most of the greats of the Adelaide Christian world are here. And part of me really wants you to think I'm doing a good job. Uh, I really care your opinion of me. Part of me fears your disapproval and criticism. I, I crave your praise and admiration. Because what you think of me affects the way I feel about myself. Why? Because I haven't yet fully grasped that I'm accepted by God. And that that's all that really matters. I know it's true up here. I preach it to myself every day. I pray it every morning. But I haven't yet fully grasped it at the core of my being. Thirdly, we can be motivated by wanting to pay God back. Again, this is the way of the world, isn't it? There's no such thing as a free lunch. So there can't possibly be such a thing as a free salvation. If Jesus has done so much for me, I've got to do something to pay him back. But as John Hindley says in his book, how many Bible studies do you need to do? How many missionaries do you need to uh, pray for to pay Jesus back for the cross? We can't pay Jesus back. It's ludicrous. And we don't need to pay Jesus back. Salvation is a gift of grace. It's free. Fourthly, we can be motivated by the thought that Jesus really needs me. Now, I said earlier, there's there's great gospel needs in the world. There's a great need for more people to work in full-time ministry. I don't think that's a bad motivation. It becomes bad when I start thinking that I'm indispensable to that work, that Jesus couldn't do it without me. Uh, My previous senior minister in London is, is writing a book at the moment about ministry. And one of the Uh, chapter titles is The Role of Saviour of the World Has Already Been Taken. (laughs) Isn't that a great title? God wonderfully chooses to work through us to accomplish his purposes in the world, but he doesn't need us in any ultimate sense. So taking a day off each week is an act of faith. Having a holiday is an act of faith. Having a daily quiet time is an act of faith because it's saying the fruit of my ministry is not ultimately dependent on me and my activity. I can rest. I can enjoy some recreation because I'm not indispensable to God's plans. So there you go. Four bad motivations. Uh, Do get hold of serving without sinking and and read more. But we're now going to look at that passage in 2 Corinthians 5. 
where Paul explains what motivated his ministry and his mission. Throughout this letter, Paul is explaining and defending his ministry. In the background, there are a group of false apostles who have infiltrated the Corinthian church and are criticizing Paul. So Paul is defending himself against their charges and explaining the true nature of his ministry. And as you read through, it's very clear it is a cross-shaped ministry. And here in chapter 5, Paul explains what motivated his work. I've got four points, and they're in uh, your books. Firstly, the fear of Christ. Paul conducts his ministry in the light of eternity. He says at the end of chapter 4, verse 18, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul knows that he is on his way home to be with the Lord. And so, verse 9, he says, we make it our goal to please him. Paul's life and ministry are all about pleasing Jesus. He's not out to impress people. He doesn't really care what anyone else thinks. His goal is to please Jesus. Is that your goal in life and ministry. Paul knows that his life will one day be assessed. He says, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. <clears throat> it's not that Paul fears condemnation from Christ. He doesn't fear punishment. He knows his ministry can't save him but he knows that there will be an assessment of his life and ministry, which brings a real seriousness to what we do, doesn't it? It means that what we do with our lives matters. Jesus will ask us what we did with the time that he gave us, what we did with the the gifts that he gave us, what we did with the opportunities that he gave us. Our lives will be assessed And the results of that assessment will last forever. Now that is a sobering thought for those of us who know Christ. But how much more for those who don't yet know him? For many of our friends, family members, colleagues, course mates, for many of the people who live in the streets surrounding this campsite, for the hundreds of thousands of people who live in the city of Adelaide, for the millions who live around our world, who don't yet know Christ, that day is a sober, not more than a sobering thought. It is a terrifying prospect. For many will suffer the eternal judgment of hell. And so Paul, knowing that this day of judgment is coming, knowing what it is to fear the Lord, says, we try to persuade others. He wants to persuade them of the truth of the gospel. He wants to persuade them of who Jesus is. He wants to persuade them to be reconciled to God before it's too late. It isn't manipulation, but it is passionate persuasion. You read through the book of Acts, Paul's ministry, and time and again Luke tells us how Paul reasoned with them, how he tried to persuade them. Christian mission is about persuading people with the truth of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. 
We know that people will only understand and believe if God does that miracle of opening their hearts to accept the message of the gospel. But we see in Paul that that doesn't mean we adopt a laid-back, casual attitude to mission. After the Titanic hit an iceberg and water started flooding the ship, it was only a matter of time before the ship sank to the bottom of the ocean. But most people were oblivious to the danger. They just carried on as if nothing was wrong. Imagine being one of the crew members on that night who knew the truth, who knew the danger, and who was tasked with getting people into the lifeboats. Would you not have pleaded with people, implored them, done everything you could to persuade them of the danger and the need to get into the boat before it's too late? Not to have done that, not to try and persuade people, would have been terribly unkind, cruel even. And how much more is it cruel and unkind if we don't do everything we can to persuade people of the danger that they face, the danger of hell? Greg quoted from an atheist author this morning. I've got another one. Uh, an atheist who once addressed all Christians when he said, if I believed what you believe about hell, I would crawl on my hands and knees across broken glass to the four corners of the world to warn people of it. We need to ask God, don't we, that he would enable us to truly believe in hell, to, to break our hearts with compassion for the lost and to grow in us a real zeal for evangelism. The apostle says we try to persuade people. He didn't always succeed, but he tried. And I reckon the question that Jesus will ask us on that judgment day is not how successful were you, or how many did you manage to persuade, but did you try? Did you at least try to persuade people to turn and trust in Christ. I don't know what that day will be like when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, whether we're in a, a huge stadium with billions and billions upon people or we're kind of lying out on a grassy rolling hill that stretches out into the, into the distance, you know, somewhere in the English countryside with a bit of Australian weather. But I imagine that there will be a moment when we meet him. When it's just you and Jesus. And you see him face to face. And you see his nail-scarred hands. You see him in his majesty and glory. And you probably fall on your face before him because you can't think of anything else to do. And maybe you start speaking, Lord, I'm so sorry. And then you feel his hand on your shoulder and he, he lifts you up and he, he looks you in the face and he smiles and he says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. And maybe he says, come here and he gives you a big hug. But you will remember that moment forever tone of his voice, the look in his eye, 
exactly the words that he said to you. You will remember that moment for a billion years and more. Knowing that Jesus is pleased with you. Paul says that's what life is all about. Living for that moment. Living to please the Lord. And so trying to persuade people. Secondly, the love of Christ. Paul says, verse 14, For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul was compelled, he says, by the love of Christ. Not just motivated by it, but controlled by it, driven by it consumed, overwhelmed. He was like a man possessed, mastered by the love of Christ. The thing that energized Paul, the thing that kept him going, the fuel in his ministry tank was an overwhelming heartfelt knowledge of the love of Jesus. Where does this experience of Christ's love come from? It comes from the cross. If we don't feel passionate about serving Jesus, if we feel lacking in that motivation and energy for ministry, then we need to go back to the cross and rediscover something of how much he loves us. Paul affirms here two truths about the cross. He says we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Firstly, he affirms that Christ died as our substitute. One died for all. We're familiar with this idea from Oh, there it is on the screen. Uh, from soccer, uh, where the player comes on in my place as my substitute, takes my place on the pitch. And in a similar way, Jesus acted as our substitute. He took our place, not on the football pitch, but on the cross. He took our place in judgment and died the death that we deserve to die. He drank the cup we deserve to drink. Because he died, we don't have to. But secondly, Paul affirms that Christ died as our representative. He says, therefore, all died. And I think we're not so familiar with this way of thinking. But we can understand it again from soccer. When the striker scores the penalty, the whole team shouts, we've scored. Or, you know, not even the team, but all the crowds in the stadium shout, we've scored. Or if you're in England and the England football team score, the whole nation shouts, we've scored. But of course we didn't. We didn't score the goal. Only the striker scored the penalty. But he was acting as our representative, representing the country. And so what he does counts for all of us. Uh, My wife, Corinne, told me I shouldn't have talked about soccer or England football team. I should have talked about Australia. But I'm not sure you get that excited about when the Australian soccer team scores, if they ever do. Sorry. Anyway, England's very passionate about their football. But in a similar way, Jesus acted as our representative on the cross. We're united with him, and so his death counts as ours. Because he died, we've died. Our life has ended, and we have a new life in him. We're a new creation in Christ. 
Now, when Paul thought about Jesus dying for him on the cross as his substitute and as his representative, he just found it extraordinary. He found himself, himself overwhelmed by the love of Christ. I wonder if sometimes we just need to hear the simplest things. I, I know we thought about this last night, but isn't this something we need to hear at least daily? Maybe you feel like a bit of a failure. Uh, maybe you've messed up in some area of your life recently and you just feel like a disgrace. Maybe you've had a discouraging coaching session or, or you just feel intimidated by all the really keen super Christians that are here this weekend. It's my privilege to tell you tonight that because of the cross, Jesus doesn't just like you. He loves you. He absolutely loves you to bits. You don't need to earn God's acceptance or favor, and you don't need to pay him back. He loves you with a passion. He absolutely loves you, and you can know that because of the cross. When I was first thinking about these talks, um, Corin was out one evening, and I watched a movie called Taken with Liam Neeson. I don't know if you've seen it. I thought it was pretty good. If you haven't seen it, I'll give you the kind of quick plot. Liam Neeson, ex-CIA agent, his daughter gets abducted in Paris by a gang of sex traffickers uh, from Albania, somewhere like that. And so Liam Neeson flies over to Paris and he discovers where this gang are operating and he fights a load of baddies. And then he eventually finds out where his daughter is. She's been bought by this guy and she's on a boat and he makes his way onto the boat fights off a load more baddies and eventually comes to the room where she's been held at knife point. And of course he shoots the guy in the head and she's rescued and she falls into his arms and she says, you came for me. And at that moment in the film I just broke down and wept because at that moment I felt overwhelmed by the love of Christ for me. I'd been thinking about the cross And I just knew at the depth of my being that he loved me because he came for me and he died for me because he loves me. And I guess we've all had those moments when we've been in that that place where we've just had such a strong sense of the love of Christ for us. And if you're like me, you just long that it would last forever. And one day it will. But we need to pray for it. We need to cultivate it to consciously come to the cross and pray that God will pour out his love into our hearts, that he'll so open our eyes and hearts to Jesus' love for us at the cross that we are compelled, that we're compelled by it to live our lives for the one who died for us. Paul says the cross changes the whole purpose of life. Verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is a nutshell verse, isn't it? It's, you know, the Christian life in a nutshell. This is the, the Christian's theme song. I no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me. Life has a new direction, a new purpose because of the cross. Life is for Jesus. Now that we know Christ's love for us at the cross, 
How could we dream of living for ourselves anymore and not for him? The Bishop of Milan tells a story about when he was a boy, um, how he was playing with a couple of other boys in the piazza outside the cathedral in Milan, and they decided to dare one another to, uh, to go into the cathedral, to go up to the statue of Jesus on the cross, to point a finger and shout out, you did that for me and I don't care. So the first boy, the first of his friends, went into the cathedral, right up to the statue, pointed his finger, you did that for me and I don't care. And then came out. Second friend went in, did the same thing. You did that for me and I don't care. And then it was his turn. He went into the cathedral, up to the statue of Jesus on the cross. He had a look around, pointed his finger. You did that for me. And he couldn't finish. Because he realized there and then that Jesus had done that for him. And he knew that he couldn't just turn his back on love like that. He certainly couldn't point his finger and mock the one who had died for him. And there and then he committed his life to live for Jesus. There's a poem that that I found in a book randomly some years ago uh, called The Mighty Love of Jesus. Let me read you a few lines from it. That he should leave the glories of that bright home on high for me to come and suffer, for me, for me to die. Is love beyond all measure, unbounded, full, and free? Oh, the wondrous love of Jesus, it could not greater be. My heart and my affections, how can I now retain? Oh, how can I but love him who once for me was slain? Ah, no, I could not, would not, my love for him deny. For him who came to suffer, for me, for me to die. If you're here tonight and you're feeling lacking in motivation to serve Jesus, if you couldn't describe your life as being for Jesus, then let me encourage you, let me urge you to find some time, maybe tonight, to come back to the cross and to ask that God would soften your heart, to open your heart afresh to the mighty love of Jesus so that you might be compelled to live your life for the one who died for you. Paul was motivated by a fear of Christ, by the love of Christ. Thirdly, by a gospel perspective. Verse 16. Verse 16. Paul says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul is saying, once we understand the gospel, once we understand the cross, 
It changes the way we think about everything and everyone. Once we get Jesus' identity right, it changes the way we think about other people and it changes the way we think about ourselves. The way we think about other people is no longer from a worldly point of view. We don't see people as the world sees them, defined by their job or their appearance or which school they went to. Our view of them isn't shaped by what's on their resume or what, where they live or how much they earn. Rather, we see them in the light of the cross. Have they come to the cross and died with Christ and been made a new creation, forgiven, adopted, loved? Or are they still enemies of the cross? Lost, blind, enslaved to sin, dead to God, without hope, desperately in need of the gospel. I think there's a danger when we take this truth to heart that we could become slightly fanatical you know, and f- put pressure on ourselves to be sharing the gospel every moment of every day. We need to remember that lost people are still people. They need to be treated with uh, gentleness and respect. We can't force the gospel upon them. But surely there should be a sense of urgency, a sense of desperation as we think about the lost. Dion Moody was a great uh, American evangelist in the 19th century. And on one of his tours to, to London, uh, it's reported that a, a group of Church, in, Church of England clergymen came to, to visit him. They said, uh, Mr. Moody, your preaching is simple, your English is awful, and yet thousands are converted. Tell us how you do it. And apparently the, the old man walked to the window and he said, when you look out of the window, what do you see? Uh, one of the clergymen impatiently came to the window and looked out and said, well, I see some children playing in the park across the road. Another clergyman came and said, well, I see an elderly couple crossing the street. And then an older, wiser clergyman said, Mr. Moody, what do you see? And apparently as the old man stood at the window, the tears rolled down his cheeks into his beard. And he said, as I look out the window... I see thousands upon thousands of perishing souls lost without a savior. Sometimes I go, I go running in the hills around Adelaide, up in Mount Osmond or at Brown Hill. You get some great views of the city. And when I'm up there, I often take the opportunity to pray for the city. And when I do, it's not uncommon for the tears to flow. What do you see as you look out over the city of Adelaide? What do you see? What do you see as you brush shoulders with the thousands of people on the uni campus or the workers in the CBD? What do you see? But the gospel doesn't only change the way people view, uh, the way Paul views other people. It also changed the way he views himself. He sees himself as being commissioned by God, entrusted with the gospel, called to be an ambassador for Christ. He, w- he was mocked by the false apostles. Maybe the Corinthians were 
losing respect for him. But Paul knows that he's been commissioned by God himself. He has a gospel-shaped perspective on his life. Paul knows that although God has accomplished the work of reconciliation, he's left the announcing of it to, well, in the first instance, the apostles like Paul, and through their gospel ministry to people like you and me. Just as the gospel is passed down from generation to generation, so the responsibility for gospel ministry is passed down from generation to generation. It is remarkable, isn't it, when you think about it, that God has accomplished this amazing reconciliation through Christ, and yet he chooses to use us to announce it to the world. He calls people like us to be co-workers with him. We implore people on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Being Christ's ambassador is a great responsibility. We need to represent Christ faithfully in our conduct and also in the message that we share. We've been entrusted with a message for passing on. Do you realize, if you are in possession of the gospel then you have a God-given responsibility to pass it on. It's not a message for keeping to ourselves. We're not entitled to do that. And we're not at liberty to change it. Our responsibility is to faithfully pass it on. But it's also an extraordinary privilege. Don't overlook the fact that this is the most breathtaking honor imaginable. You are an ambassador for the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let that change the way that you think about yourself and your life. So a gospel-shaped perspective means Paul sees everything and everyone differently. Finally, a gospel opportunity. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, as God's co-workers, we urge you, not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Paul is impressing upon these Corinthian Christians the great opportunity that exists before the return of the Lord Jesus. God had always promised a time of salvation and favor. And Paul says, don't you realize we live in that time? We live in the last days. The time between the ascension of the Lord Jesus and the return of the Lord Jesus. We live in a time of incredible gospel opportunity. All around the world, people are coming to Christ. Paul looks at life and he looks at the world and you can almost feel his excitement as he contemplates the immense opportunities that there are for the gospel. One of the good things that I've started doing in the last couple of years is praying every morning about today, reminding myself what this day is, that today is a day of Christ's reign. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day that I enjoy God's favor. I stand in grace, adopted, forgiven, dearly loved, Today is a day of opportunity to seek God's kingdom, to proclaim the gospel, to be a blessing to others and bring pleasure to God's heart. 
Today is one day closer to the fulfillment of my hope when I'll see my Savior face to face. Friends, we live in the most exciting period in all of history. We live in the last days. We live in the time of God's favor and the day of salvation. And we need to seize the day to make the most of the opportunities that are all around us. Who knows how much time we have? Who knows when Jesus will return or how many days he will give us? Who knows what God might do through us if we seize this gospel opportunity? What will you do with the life that Jesus has given you? What will you do with the gifts that he's given you? What will you do with the opportunities that you have to live for him, to please him, to be his ambassador in the world? Wouldn't it be gutting to turn up in the new creation, to be surrounded by people from every nation, all exhausted but elated, all sharing the stories of how God has been at work through them for Christ, sharing about the persecutions they've endured, the efforts that they've made, the risks that they took. Wouldn't it be gutting if we didn't have that much to talk about? To have tried so little, for it to have cost us so little, Paul says, come on, open your eyes. This is the time of God's salvation. This is the time of his favor. Let's go. Now, this isn't suggesting that it's all down to us, that Christ needs us in any ultimate sense. No, God will accomplish his work of salvation. He just offers us the opportunity to be a part of it. If you waste the opportunity, he'll find someone else to use. But don't you want to be used by God? Don't you want the joy of being used by him to take the gospel to the world? There's a story of a shoe salesman who was sent by head office to West Africa to assess the market for shoes. And the salesman sent home this despairing message. Situation hopeless. No one wears any shoes out here. Bring me home immediately. The man was brought home and a second salesman was sent out. He too assessed the situation but sent back a very different message. Situation fantastic. No one wears any shoes out here. Send as many shoes as you can possibly find. Let me say, it depends on how you look at the situation. I reckon this is a great time to be a Christian in Adelaide because there are so many opportunities for the gospel. So many people who haven't yet really heard about Jesus. That's why we as a family have decided to stay in Adelaide rather than going back to the UK because we are really excited about the gospel opportunities that there are here. That's why we're planning to move to the west of the city. Not just because there's a great need, 
but because there's a great opportunity. Who knows what God might do through us in our lifetimes as we live our lives for the one who died for us, making it our goal to please him and persuade others, doing everything we can, wherever we can, for whoever we can, to make the Lord Jesus known. Let's pray. As we sang earlier, so we pray, give me the faith which can remove and sink the mountain to a plain. Give me the childlike praying love which longs to build your house again. Your, heart, your love, let it my heart overpower and all my simple soul devour. I would the precious time redeem and longer live for this alone to spend and to be spent for them who have not yet my Savior known. Fully on you my mission base and only breathe to breathe your grace. My talents, gifts, and graces, Lord, into your hands I freely give. And let me live to preach your word. And let me to your glory live. My every sacred moment spend in publishing the sinner's friend. Enlarge, inflame, and fill my heart with boundless grace and love outpoured. And let me all my strength exert and love them with a zeal like yours and lead them to your open side, the sheep for whom their shepherd died. Amen.